Um, the first hour today, we're going to return to analgesics and talk about NSAIDs, aspirin, acetaminophen. A little bit will be reviewed because we pick up on the aspirin team. Diane Song, one of our um, residents, Kevin's colleague, is going to teach that material. This is in a, um, a PDF format. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. All yours. Okay. Hi guys. Um, so like Paul mentioned, I'm Diane. I'm one of the PGY1 res pharmacy residents at Tufts Medical Center. And um, today I'm going to be talking to you guys about non-opioid analgesics. I know Kevin talked to you guys about the opioids last week. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to start off by asking you guys this first question. I know it sounds sort of simple, but, um, you know, when we accidentally poke ourselves with a needle or step on something on the ground, we have this immediate reaction that's painful. Um, and does anyone know why or what happens in the body to cause that? Yeah. Yeah, so the nociceptors are these nerve cells or nerve receptors that will sort of sense this pain. Um, but to break it down a little bit further, let's say that's the needle that we just poked ourselves with. It's going through the skin cells. <coughs> and what happens are there's these little yellow circles here that represent something called prostaglandins. And the prostaglandins are released after there's some sort of cell injury. And they do a couple of different things. Mainly they can cause inflammation they can cause pain, and the way that they cause pain is, you see here, these are your nociceptors, and what they do is they sensitize these receptors to pain, so they cause the signal to go through the nociceptors and then eventually hit your brain and let you know that something's going wrong. Um, and so to sort of better visualize this, this is you, and then you stepped on a nail on the ground, unfortunately, so you have that first <laughs> stimulus, right? And then what happens is that your nociceptors are sensitized to that um, the pain stimulus. And this is because, um, and I apologize, it's not necessarily stimulated by prostaglandins, but the prostaglandins sensitize your receptors to feel the pain, send the signal to your spinal cord. And then once the signal goes to your spinal cord, then it'll travel to your brain and then some choice words, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> So as, just as a brief summary again, just to make sure that the concept is sort of solidified, we have the injury, the release of prostaglandins, which a bunch of different things happen, includes sensitizing the pain receptors, causing inflammation, and then another thing they do is they can also cause fever. And that's in the presence of, let's say if there's bacteria, what your body does is they want to increase the body temperature to kill off that bacteria. So um, this is a very simple slide, but these are really, if you were to overgeneralize what prostaglandins can do, they can, um, they're associated with the pain, fever, and inflammation. Um, and then we'll see some of the non-opioid analgesics that we talk about through the rest of today's classes associated with prostaglandins. Um, so the objectives of today's lecture are first to be able to understand how the, these drugs work in the body and how they work to decrease pain, fever, and inflammation. And then the second objective is to identify what the most common adverse effects are. And um, 
it's not going to just be like a memorizing thing. It'll make sense once we understand how the drug works in the body. And then lastly, um, based on how they work, then we'll able to, un to be able to describe what uses you can use certain drugs in, if that makes sense. Um, and then the order of today's presentation or lecture will go from, first we'll talk about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, then we're going to talk about aspirin, and then lastly Tylenol or acetaminophen. And as we go through each of these three main buckets or categories of drugs, there's four main things that um, I thought would be important to focus on. And the first is being the activity of the drug. And what that means is keeping in mind if the drug works, by, um, works to decrease pain, works to decrease the fever, and then works to decrease inflammation. So those three things when thinking about the activity. The second part would be um, keeping in mind how the drug actually works in the body, which I'll explain a little bit more um, as we go along. And then how the mechanism of action might help explain what type of adverse effects we'll typically see using these agents. And lastly, any special <laughs> dosing considerations as well. So to start out, we're gonna start out with the NSAIDs. So I wanted to ask you guys, do you have any favorites that you use? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, so ibuprofen and Aleve. Does anyone know what the generic of Aleve is? Naproxen. Yeah, and naproxen. Um, are there any others that you guys like to use or have heard of? Okay, so I mean, <laughs> there's many different NSAIDs, but right, the two ones that most, the two that most people know about are ibuprofen, which can be also known as Motrin or Advil, and then naproxen or Aleve, and then these are others, um, some that you may see more in the hospital setting, like Ketorolac or Toradol. Um, does anyone know what the differences are, or if there are any differences between these agents? Or any guesses? Like the length of time that they work for? Yeah, so the length of time in the body. Does anyone happen to know which one may work a little bit longer? Naproxen. Yeah, so um, one of the differences between ibuprofen and naproxen is their half-life. So naproxen has a longer half-life about, of about 12 to 18 hours, and as a result, you'll dose them it's more dose BID versus, or twice a day, versus ibuprofen, which has a shorter half-life, and you'll typically see like a every four to six, eight, four to six hour dosing. Um, and then are there any other differences that you guys think may be between these agents? Do some people tolerate certain better in the stomach too? Yeah, so there's different, there's like a difference in the tolerability profile and that can be related to the mechanism of action of the drugs and we'll dive a little bit more deeply into that later. Um, so what about in terms of efficacy? Do you guys know if some are more effective than the others? <laughs> what? what? Like yeah, what, what do you think it depends on? <laughs> What your goal is. <laughs> what your goal is? Yeah, if, if you are blocking COX-1 or COX-2, the different affinities and what that outcome would be. Right, so in terms of the efficacy, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's not a lot of literature that suggests one of these agents are more effective in reducing pain versus the other. 
and the efficacy is more so individualized per person. So some people may prefer or think that naproxen is more effective versus ibuprofen. Um, personally, for me, I like naproxen better. I think it works longer in the body, so you don't have to take it as much. But So really, um, just to summarize, the differences may be like interpersonal or interpatient variability, um, tolerability profile, and then the half-life or how frequent you use these drugs. In terms, <clears throat> when we're looking at the activity of the drug, this, um, so NSAIDs are great. They have effects against pain, so analgesia. They have effects, again, uh, effects to reduce fever, so they have that antipyretic effect. And then they also reduce inflammation, so they have anti-inflammatory properties. In terms of their mechanism of action, if you were to look it up on any type of drug resource, what you would find is it says this. It reversibly stops the production of cyclooxygenase, which inhibits prostaglandins. What do you guys think this means? It's a little confusing, right? When I first read it, I was like, it seems like a lot of big words. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to point out here is that it inhibits the prostaglandins that earlier we talked about how prostaglandins are associated with the pain, fever, and inflammation. Um, but to dive a little bit more deeply into what that looks like, what exactly cyclooxygenase is, I wanted to present this pathway. Um, and it's a little, it looks interesting. Um, so. Just as like a brief overview, we have our membrane phospholipids. So remember that picture where that needle is puncturing the skin and then the cell membrane? What happens is there are these phospholipids in your cell membrane and there's an enzyme that starts cleaving the um, phospholipids to create something called um, arachidonic acid or that's what's the result of it. And then arachidonic acid can then further go down these pathways to create leukotrienes and different type of prostaglandins. But really for the purpose of, all right, so this is a picture here. But for the purpose of today's lecture, what I wanted to focus on was more this pathway right here because this is where we see our prostaglandins and that's where we'll see the effects on the pain, inflammation, and fever. So before I move on, does that make sense? Okay, I just want to make sure. All right, so if we were to blow up that pathway, this is a little bit more of a description of what happens. So we have our arachidonic acid and you can see there's two different ways that it can go. So arachidonic acid can be converted to um, these prostaglandins or thromboxane in this pathway, or it can be converted to these different type of prostaglandins here, and they have different effects. Um, so I just want to back up for a second because it might sound confusing, but normally in our body, this is what happens, right? So normally we have these COX-1 enzymes, and what they do is they convert arachidonic acid to these prostaglandins and thromboxane, and then this will help in hemostasis, so that's that balance of um, how likely our blood is to clot. It also, these prostaglandins help protect our gastric mucosa from the stomach acid, and they also help maintain renal blood flow. So once again, these are things that normally occur in our body. In the COX-2 pathway, which is a little bit more, it's, it can be different in that it's more inducible, meaning that it happens as a result of some sort of injury. Um, and then these will produce different types of prostaglandins, which as you can see here are associated with the pain, fever, and inflammation. Um, so this is what normal processes occur. With NSAIDs, what we do is we block, the NSAIDs block COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes, 
And the idea is that by blocking the COX-2 enzyme, it prevents arachidonic acid from becoming the prostaglandins that are associated with pain, fever, and inflammation, right? So that's the idea behind it. It works. But unfortunately, you can't just choose one function to inhibit. So it really ends up inhibiting all these different things that normally happen in our body. So based on this slide, what would you guys expect to see are some adverse effects of taking NSAIDs? Yeah, so there would be some sort of kidney dysfunction. Um, and what do our kidneys help with, too, in terms of like our fluid balance? Yeah, blood pressure, um, and also like the sodium water balance, right? So if we sort of block that renal blood flow and decrease kidney function, what would you guys expect to see with that sodium water balance? Retention. Yeah, so there's fluid retention as a result of that. So by using NSAIDs, you may end up seeing fluid retention. Um, what, what are other things that you guys think you would see? Yeah, problems with bleeding. So I'm going to go a little bit more into the difference between this, which is called thromboxane, and this, which is called prostacyclin, and how it affects the blood clotting. Um, but yeah, you'll see problems with bleeding. And then what about the production of gastric mucosa? Yeah, so you'll start to see, um, or you may, be, you may see GI ulcers or perforation as a result of using NSAIDs as well. So that leads us to this slide here, and you guys hit most of the concepts, or really all of it. So the GI disturbances, the nausea and diarrhea, what do you guys think that's a result of? Because of the gastric lining is reduced, so actually, I thought the same thing initially, but it's more so due to the acidity of the structure itself, and it causes like an irritation in the lining. But um, that's a good thought, though. That's what I thought initially, too. Does reduce the buffering capabilities? Right. So um, we talked about before how it decreases the protection of the gastric mucosa, which is why we'll see gastric ulcers. Um, yeah, so as a result of like the nausea, diarrhea, which is more so due to that like direct skin, or not skin irritation, like the mucosal irritation, if your patient comes to your clinic and asks you how they can potentially decrease the risk of those type of irritation, irritating effects, what would you guys suggest for me? Eat it with food. Yeah, so eating it with food may help reduce that irritation. Um, okay, so GI disturbances, bleeding issues, renal insufficiency, and then lastly, what have you guys heard anything regarding NSAIDs in pregnancy at all? Would you use it, not use it? So, yeah, so there's some risks with using NSAIDs. Um, and this is sort of a confusing picture, but I'll explain it. But really, the, the recommendation is to avoid using NSAIDs most commonly in the third trimester of a pregnancy. And the reason for this is this risk of a premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. Oh, did you guess that? Oh. We just, we just oh, you did? 
fetal Oh, perfect. So, can anyone explain to me what the purpose of a ductus arteriosus is? <laughs> yeah. So, it's this blood vessel, right, that connects your pulmonary artery to your the baby's aorta. And the idea is that it will, um, the blood doesn't flow to the lungs of the developing fetus because they're, they're not using their lungs when they're developing in, their, in the pregnant lady's stomach. Um, and what, so how do you guys think this is kept open though, this blood vessel? Yeah, so it would be like a vasodilating property. And what do you guys think may cause this vasodilation or help maintain it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So prostaglandins, there's a specific one that helps. Um, sorry, I forgot. It escapes me which exact prostaglandin causes this vasodilation or like helps maintain it. But prostaglandins help maintain the vasodilation of the ductus arteriosus. So how do you guys think NSAIDs will affect it then? Yeah, so because NSAIDs block Cox enzymes, which then inhibit the production of prostaglandins, then you'll inhibit or you'll cause more of a vasoconstriction and you can cause this premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. And this is more, was, um, there was an increased risk that was seen with NSAID use in the third trimester of pregnant patients. Um, but moving on, this is separate from NSAID use in pregnancy. Have, has anyone heard of mesoprostol before? Or Cytotec? Um, so mesoprostol or Cytotec uh, was originally marketed to, as a prostaglandin E1 analog. And um, if I were to show this here, and I would, if I were to tell you guys that prostaglandin E1 is what is responsible for the protection of gastric mucosa, what do you guys think the purpose of mesoprostol was? Cramps? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of the gastric mucosa, if like, you know, because normally we have these prostaglandins that help protect our gastric mucosa. So for if mesoprostol is a prostaglandin analog that helps protect the gastric mucosa, then um, so basically originally it was marketed to protect that gastric lining to prevent or treat gastric ulcers because it's an analog of the prostaglandin that is associated with the protection of the gastric mucosa. Do you guys see, do you, have you guys seen it used for that purpose? No. Yeah, I haven't seen it used for that either. Um, and the reason behind that is because there are other drugs that are, that have at least at, that are at least as effective as mesoprostol in protecting the gastric ulcer or the preventing or treating gastric ulcers. Do you guys know any drugs that help protect the lining? They're like over-the-counter drugs, people use it all the time. PPIs, did you guys hear? Proton pump inhibitors? Yeah, so proton pump inhibitors are also used for um, treating or preventing gastric ulcers and they tend to have a more uh, they're, they tend to be w better tolerated than mesoprostol. And we'll dive into the reason why mesoprostol is not as well tolerated. 
Um, but another indication for mesoprostol is uterine contraction or uh, the induction of labor and cervical ripening in pregnant patients who are about to give birth. And this is because this prostaglandin analog is also associated with uterine contraction. Another indication of mesoprostol is um, in conjunction with other drugs um, for early termination as well. And it's that same idea of this uterine contraction. So if you think about the fact that, it, that this prostaglandin E1 analog normally helps the contraction of the uterus, what kind of side effects would you expect to see? If like the area is like contracting, it hurts, yeah, right? So it's like <laughs> abdominal discomfort, it's painful. Um, and then other adverse effects associated with misoprostol is a lot of diarrhea and abdominal cramps, as we mentioned, um, flatulence, etc. So it's not really well tolerated. PPIs, which are as effective as misoprostol in preventing or treating gastric ulcers, are better tolerated, so those are what are used in these patients. Um, okay. So then moving on to the black box warnings of NSAIDs. So we have cardiovascular risk and gastrointestinal risk. Um, so the cardiovascular risk, it's a little more complicated, which I'll dive into a little bit um, in a couple of slides, but the gastrointestinal GI risk is dealing with that, what we talked about before, the fact that the NSAIDs inhibit the COX enzymes, which will then inhibit the prostaglandins that are associated with protecting the GI lining. Does anyone have any questions so far? Is it okay? Confusing, not confusing? Okay. <laughs> All right, so with NSAIDs, I tried to simplify. Um, obviously, you know, real patient care is not as black and white, but just very simple ideas of when to use them versus when not to use them. So the benefit of NSAIDs is they have all those three effects, right? They have analgesic effects, antipyretic effects, anti-inflammatory effects. For the population where you want to be a little more careful in using them are um, heart failure patients. And why do you guys think heart failure patients? You have to be a little more careful. Fluid retention. Yeah, exactly, the fluid retention. Um, the pregnancy third trimester, we just talked about that premature closing of the ductus arteriosus. GI disorders because of the risk of GI ulcers or perforation. And then acute renal failure as we talked about before as well. So in terms of NSAID selectivity, have you guys heard about celecoxib or Celebrex? What do you guys know about it? Yeah, so it's more of a COX-2 selective inhibitor. Um, and then we have, so really there's this sort of like array of different types of selectivity with the COX inhibitors. So the NSAIDs, um, there's a lot of different NSAIDs and there's this great chart that I could provide you guys too which shows sort of like the scheme of it. But really celecoxib was marketed for its COX-2 selectivity. Um, and then because of that, the reason why it was like marketed was this potential decreased risk of GI effects, which I'll talk about probably the next slide, I think, yeah. But this is just like a spectrum of selectivity. So we just talked about ibuprofen and naproxen where they're more non-selective. So they may inhibit, they're, they're more likely to inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2. So when looking at the COX-2 selective inhibitors, there are these three. Um, who, so everyone's heard about celecoxib. Who's heard about rofecoxib? 
And what about valdecoxib? No. Yeah, so the reason we haven't heard about them is because they are no longer on the market. The reason why rofacoxib's not on the market, does anyone have, do you guys know by any chance? No, yeah, so it's an increase in CV events is what they found. And then valdecoxib as well is the increase in CV events and also, or cardiovascular events, and also this increased risk of skin reactions that were fatal. Um, but when looking at COX-2 selective inhibitors, they have the same activity as NSAIDs because they're still part of that class. Um, and the only difference really in their mechanism of action is that they're a little more, they're more, a little more selective for COX-2 inhibition. So what you'll see is that you'll inhibit the pain, fever, inflammation. And what do you guys think is the benefit of that based on this diagram? Yeah, so the idea was that we'll protect or we'll con uh, preserve the prostaglandins that are associated with the gastric protection, but we'll still have the effects against pain, fever, and inflammation. But there's still one picture or one part of this that's missing, and it's right here, the hemostasis. Um, so that's what we're going to dive into a little bit. Um, but these are the adverse effects, so right? There's less GI toxicity versus the traditional NSAIDs. Um, there's this idea of less interference with platelet aggregation, which I'll talk about in a couple of slides, and then this potential increased risk of cardiovascular adverse events. So the reason why there's this potential increase in CV events, <coughs> bless you, relates to this. So the hemostasis, there's this balance normally between thromboxane in our body and PGI2 or prostacyclin. So the differences between these two, thromboxane, they are platelet activators, so they promote platelet aggregation, which promotes clotting, and they're also vasoconstrictors. Prostacyclins, on the other hand, they're, they're opposite, so they inhibit platelet aggregation, um, and then they promote vasodilation. When we use COX-2 selective inhibitors, we're inhibiting that part, right? So here we see we're inhibiting this portion and we're inhibiting prostacyclins. So as a result of that, what do you guys think may happen if we just inhibit the prostacyclins and we have more thromboxane? Right, so the increase in clotting. And this is a picture um, which shows like what happens in our normal state, we have this balance between the thromboxane and prostacyclin, so we're not really in this pro-thrombotic state all the time. The second picture is a low-dose aspirin and how the aspirin will help um, in terms of inhibiting, which, sorry, I'm going to back up. I'm going to go more deeply into that when I talk about aspirin. But I wanted to focus on this picture here. So celecoxib, because it inhibits the prostacyclins, then look at the thromboxane. That's like a very large amount of it, which could lead to this increased risk of CV events because of the thrombotic state. So as a brief break, um, this is a question. So why is there an increase of thrombo thrombosis with COX-2 selective agents? Yeah. <laughs> so it's the inhibition of COX-2, which favors thromboxane production, which then leads the patient to be in a more prothrombotic state. Um, so, at this point, does anyone have any questions about the NSAIDs? 
Um, when we inhibit either COX-1 or COX-2, yeah. is there like a Le Chatelier effect that you're going to get even more thromboxane than you would with no inhibition at all? Wait, sorry, could you repeat the question? Um, do the earlier, does like the arachidonic acid and other parts of that prostaglandin um, kind of change? Did the earlier factors kind of build up the, if we inhibit COX-2, we end up with even more COX-1 products? Yeah, so the idea was like cell economy to inhibit the cost of and then there's the more of the thromboxane, right? And then that would lead to a more thromboxane. Like a greater ratio of thromboxane or an absolutely greater amount of thromboxane? I think that, that I'm not sure, but I think that the idea is that because there is a balance between thromboxane and prostacyclin, and once we disrupt that prostacyclin part, it's just the fact that thromboxane becomes more unopposed. Um, that's where really the switch of a thromboxane, but I'm not sure about the ratio itself. Okay. But I don't Thank know you. how you have Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Okay. okay. Moving on to aspirin. So aspirin is also called acetyl salicylic acid, and this is the structure here, and this is the acetyl group that's associated with how it works to inhibit the COX enzymes. The um, so aspirin is also similar in activity to NSAIDs in the way that it has analgesic effects, antipyretic effects, anti-inflammatory effects, and antiplatelet effects. And I think Justin, um, the cardiopharmacist, had spoken to you guys earlier about that, right? Um, but so just so as a quick review, the mechanism of action is that aspirin irreversibly stops the production of cyclooxygenase, which inhibits those prostaglandins. And so the way that it irreversibly inhibits, um, so this is a poor-ish drawing of the cyclooxygenase enzyme, but here's the active site right here. And we have our aspirin, and what aspirin does is that it acetylates this portion right here, and by doing so it creates a covalent bond that causes this to be this irreversible inhibition as opposed to NSAIDs, which um, have more of like a non-covalent bond, and they have more of a reversible inhibition. And here you can see that once aspirin acetylates the COX enzymes, we are left with salicylates or salicylic acids. Um, and when looking at the doses of aspirin, so what do you guys notice about these different doses? <laughs> They're different, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're different depending on the indication. Um, so the doses are different, and then what about the frequencies? Yeah, sorry. Yes, the frequencies. So the frequencies are different as well. Um, so if we're thinking about cardio protection, and if you were thinking about the COX pathways, which COX enzyme do you think aspirin is inhibiting at that point? Yeah, so at lower doses, aspirin inhibits COX-1 enzymes. But actually, as you increase the dose itself, it eventually begins to inhibit COX-2 enzymes as well. And we know that the COX-2 enzymes are associated with the prostaglandins that cause pain, inflammation, and fever. So then you'll start to see all of these effects. What about the frequency? This is sort of a difficult concept to explain, so I'll try my best to explain this. But 
Okay, so when we're inhibiting COX enzymes to inhibit the function of platelets, we have that irreversible inhibition, right? So we're really dosing the aspirin to ensure that the inhibition of platelets lasts for the lifetime of the platelet. So we don't need to dose them as, frequent, as frequently, as opposed to with pain, fever, and inflammation, we're targeting eventually the prostaglandins, right? Those inflammatory prostaglandins, which are created more frequently. So really the, the more frequent dosing is to target that constant um, like firing of those inflammatory prostaglandins. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the difference. I thought that was really cool. It took me a while to wrap my head around and also find the answers. I talked to Paul and our pain pharmacist and everyone. So let me know if you guys have any questions about that. Um, so in terms of the adverse effects of aspirin, similar to NSAIDs in terms of those GI disturbances, bleeding, renal insufficiency, right? Because we're still going through the same pathway and blocking the same things. Um, well, but for tinnitus, do you guys know um, what tinnitus is? Yeah. Ringing in the ears, yes. And um, if we were to go back to this picture here, actually, because aspirin is converted to salicylates, once it acetylates the COX enzymes, when there's a lot of this, so that usually you'll hear like a um, toxicity of salicylic acids result in tinnitus or ringing of the ears. And that's when you'll typically see that. And then lastly, have you guys heard of Ray syndrome? It's like one of those terms where like you've heard it. You have no idea where you've heard it. Yeah. Um, so Ray syndrome. It's to really keep it simple, Ray syndrome is associated with encephalopathy or brain dysfunction and liver damage. And it, it is relatively rare at, nowadays, I believe, um, but it's a, it was associated with aspirin use in children who had viral illnesses, more specifically um, varicella viruses. Oh, <laughs> um, which is very specific, and really the explanation as to why it's aspirin use in children who have these viruses is still unclear. Um, but what they do know is that in these situations where a, a child has Ray syndrome, what happens is the mitochondria of liver cells are damaged. So when there's damage in the liver cells, that causes liver dysfunction. And we know that liver is um, responsible for clearing our blood and out of toxins, but if the liver dis um, has dysfunction, there's increased waste products in our blood, such as ammonia and nitrogen. Ammonia can cross the blood-brain barrier and then cause the encephalopathy. But, yeah, the mechanism behind how this happens is still unclear. So does anyone have any questions after that? Okay. Um, <coughs> So moving on to our last Tylenol or acetaminophen. Um, so what's important that is different about Tylenol is that although it has analgesic and um, antipyretic effects, it does not have anti-inflammatory effects. The mechanism of action of Tylenol is actually still unclear exactly how, what they do, but what they what's proposed is that it inhibits prostaglandins more in the central nervous system as opposed to NSAIDs, which affect the peripheral nervous system, or the peripheral tissues, rather. 
Um, so because of this supposed mechanism, it's thought that since it only affects the central nervous system prostaglandins, it won't necessarily affect the periphery where there is that anti or where there is that inflammation, and that's a proposed mechanism why it doesn't have anti-inflammatory effects. In terms of dosing for Tylenol, so I'm sure all of us usually see that range of Q4 to six hours, 325 to 1,000 milligrams. For max dosing, um, there's different. I've seen it differently, and I discussed it with Paul yesterday, too, where some people say that the max dosing is 4 grams per day, others say it's 3 grams per day. I think the consensus was that um, in patients who are self-medicating or who are taking Tylenol for OTC-like reasons, they the max dose is recommended at 3 grams per day, but for prescription Tylenol, the max dose would be 4 grams per day. And FDA actually came out with this max dosage per unit. So you guys have seen Tylenol is in like many different combination products, right? So Percocet, NyQuil, it's in all those things. And the max dosage per unit that a Tylenol could be in those combination products are maxed out at 325 milligrams, and this is to also aid in preventing overdose of Tylenol. So why do you guys think there's this concern of overdosing Tylenol? Liver disease? Yeah, exactly. So there's liver toxicity. Um, other than that, it's relatively well tolerated, which in that sense it can be dangerous, right? Because you can just take Tylenol like water and you feel like nothing's going on, but really you'll end up overdosing and you could have this risk of liver toxicity. There's also this potential interaction with warfarin, um, and it's this potential increase in INR. So recommendations are really just to monitor. Um, it's not like a hard contraindication not to use those together. And it is associated with less bleeding events than NSAIDs and warfarin, so that's also something to keep in mind. Um, and basically when to use Tylenol versus not to use. So the mild to moderate pain, fever, um, and also in pregnancy breastfeeding, it tends, it's known to be safer than NSAID use. And then when not to use is, is if there's inflammation or significant liver and alcohol use. So this is my next question. DS comes to your clinic for a routine checkup and she asks if she can take the following medications what are your first thoughts? No. 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 <laughs> Why? Yeah. Um, so do you guys know like how much Tylenol are in each of these products? Five hundred of the Yes. So five hundred milligrams per tablet for extra strength. So it's about 650 per 30 ml in NyQuil, but I think it also depends on the type of NyQuil product. There's like a million out there. Um, but really, like first steps when you go through this would be to look into what products are they using, how much Tylenol are in these products. And when you calculate the total dosing of Tylenol, it comes for this, which sort of seems relatively like not that bad, it ends up being 7,200 milligrams per day if this is what the patient is actually taking. And that is not okay. okay. So we must be very vigilant. Um, and the purpose of this question is really to reinforce that, right? Like, there are all these different Tylenol products out there on the shelves that patients can just start taking all together. So keeping this in mind is, would be helpful for them. 
So um, moving on, this is sort of a complicated looking picture too, but really just to simplify, this is the metabolism of Tylenol. And so this is Tylenol, right? Normally about 90% of clearance occurs through these sulfate and glucuronide conjugates. There's a lower percent that's cleared in the urine and a lower percent that's cleared through that CYP P450, CYP P450 system. Um, the 5%-ish that is cleared from the CYP P450 system, as you can see here at therapeutic doses of Tylenol, there's these glutathione stores that convert this, um, this toxic metabolite that Tylenol becomes to non-toxic metabolites, right? So just to repeat that, Tylenol, the low, like the 5% that it clears to through P450 gets converted to these toxic metabolites called, it's here, N-acetyl P-benzoclinone And then these toxic metabolites then get converted to non-toxic metabolites by the glutathione stores. What happens when you take too much Tylenol is that you, um, you use up all your sulfate stores, right? So then it goes through more of this pathway. You're creating more um, toxic metabolites. And then you use up all your glutathione stores. And as a result, you have this undetoxified metabolite that will then lead to this liver damage. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So when looking at Tylenol overdose, what what part of these, like if you were a drug company and you wanted to make something that would help with Tylenol overdose, is there anything you might want to target in this area? Glutathione. Yeah, right, so if we replete glutathione stores, then we'll have more that are converted to non-toxic metabolites. And that is precisely what N-acetylcysteine does. So the mechanism of action is that it repeats glutathione stores <coughs> so that more of the toxic metabolites are converted to non-toxic metabolites. Um, in terms of dosing, it's important to give within 16 to 24 hours, and, like, and that's really based on how quickly Tylenol is absorbed in the body as well. Yeah. Um, is the N-acetylcysteine dosed based on how much was taken, or is there just like a, or is it weight-based or anything, or is there just a specific, like, like um, like a set dose, set dose, yeah. X dose. You know, I'm actually not too sure. Paul, do you happen to know? Yeah, it's it's usually based on the patient's weight, given that the, the dose that's ingested is oftentimes unknown, and then it's how often and how long do you continue that for, that determines the outcome. Um, does does it also break down alcohol, or is that why you hear about liver toxicity and Tylenol and alcohol use? Um, I'm not sure if glutathione breaks down, or you say glutathione in relation to alcohol use? Yeah. I, From my understanding, I thought that the alcohol use was more in relation to the damage to the liver itself. I'm not sure how it's related to glutathione. Okay, I don't know if it is. That's what I was yeah, just wondering. No, I'm not sure either. I could actually, unless Paul knows. Um, we can talk about it later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay, so then this last question, I think this is the last question, but how does Tylenol overdose cause liver damage? 